First of all, welcome everyone who's watching online. Every week we have thousands of people who join us from the four corners of the earth. And it would be great if you'd let us know where you're watching from. You can go to our King of Kings Jerusalem webpage. You can go to Facebook, YouTube. There's a chat option there. Well, last week, Pastor Chad began a series called Life Behind the Shield. It's taken from the first chapter of this first letter of Peter, who tells us that the followers of Jesus are we who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, I read that from the New International Version, but the New King James Version, which I used, didn't use that word shielded, but it means the same thing, and it has a military connotation. It could be soldiers who are a shield together against an invader who's laying siege to a city. Chad reminded us that life behind God's shield of protection happens if we are obedient to our commander. Chad used many examples from the life of Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Daniel, and the Apostle Paul. They obeyed God through some of the most serious trials and tests imaginable. Noah was told to build an ark, and many, many decades he was building, and he was despised by people, and yet God saved he and his family. Abraham was delayed in Haran after he was already promised a promised land, and he had to wait a long time before he got to the promised land. There's Joseph in a pit and later in a dungeon. There's Daniel in a lion's den. The Apostle Paul facing rejection and having near-death experiences as he ministered the gospel. Well, each one of these eventual champions became champions in their times of training for their ultimate god designed destiny. The key to their ultimate victory happened in their times of preparation, not just in the midst of their battles. Well, I'm doing part two in this series, and we're still in chapter one of 1 Peter. While Pastor Chad focused on the role of obedience in experiencing God's protective shield, my focus tonight is on the role of faith in experiencing the shield of God of protection. And so the title of my message is Life Behind the Shield of Faith. We're talking tonight about the shield of faith. Now this very phrase, shield of faith, is found in Ephesians chapter 6. That's where Paul tells about our need to put on the whole armor of God in our battle with powerful spiritual forces in high places. And Paul says in verse 6 of that chapter, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. By saying, above all, Paul is saying that faith is the most important thing we need in order to experience life behind the shield. A few days ago, my wife Anne reminded me of what happened outside the doors of our pavilion, our sanctuary in downtown Jerusalem in 2003. A bus pulled up to the building. One of our faithful members of King of Kings was standing at that bus stop, and suddenly there was a fiery, loud explosion, and that bus blew up into smithereens, sending metal projectiles in every direction. Well, our friend Ron told us the story of how he wasn't touched by any of those flying pieces of metal. He said that he felt like there was a shield all around him, and it was a miracle that Ron was not harmed in any way. Although several on that bus were killed that day and many more were injured on and around that bus. 
Well, just because we have faith doesn't mean we'll never be physically hurt or killed. But God's shield of faith does guarantee that we will never allow our eternal life be taken away from us by anyone else, any of our circumstances, not even the devil himself. The only way we could ever lose our salvation is if we ourselves voluntarily abandon our shield of faith. So just in three verses, we have three references to faith. In verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 1, which is our text, it doesn't talk about just any kind of faith, but genuine faith that will never disappear no matter what life throws at us. In verse 8, Peter mentions that our faith is in someone who is invisible. And yet, somehow, this unseen Lord, we come to love and rejoice in. And then in verse 9, Peter tells us what the ultimate purpose and destiny is of our faith, and that is the salvation of our souls. Now, the word soul here in the Greek really refers to our whole being, body, soul, and spirit together. Now, we get to verses 10 to 12, and I'm not going to be able to read it. We don't have the time. But it says there that salvation is something that the prophets of old searched carefully into. And they concluded that God would send his Messiah who would suffer and eventually be glorified. And that the good news of this salvation, the angels wish they knew about. Wow, we've got a precious thing. Even the angels would long to know what we know about the gospel. And then in verse 13 to 16, Peter explains that if our faith is genuine, if it's real, if it's faith that will save us, then it will be evident in the way we live. We are increasingly consecrating our whole lives, being made holy and ready for the return of the Lord. And then verse 17, here Peter reminds us that our Lord is also our righteous judge. And knowing that, we need to undergo this process of sanctification, becoming more holy in our life behind the shield so that we will fear him. We will have a reverent fear knowing that he will judge us one day. Now, in verses 18 to 21, Peter reminds us of the huge price that Yeshua paid to redeem us, the price of his precious blood, And this should be a motivation for us to keep on keeping on, continually believing and hoping until the end. He's done so much for us. We ought to be so grateful that we do everything we can for him in return. Then we come to verses 22 to 23. And here, Peter talks about one of the evidences of genuine faith, of someone who has been truly born again, truly redeemed. It's a person who sincerely loves his or her fellow believers. And then the final two verses of this chapter we're studying, verses 23 to 25, those are actually three verses. Here Peter talks about the word of God as being involved in the entire process of our salvation, from our new birth to our purification, from our justification to our sanctification. Well, being such a long portion of scripture, 20 verses in all, I'll never be able to touch on all the deep things that are revealed in 1 Peter chapter 1. But I will focus on those verses that relate to the central topic of my message, which is the shield of faith. Now, the first first truth I want to share with you is taken from verses 18 to 21. And this is the truth. Saving faith is entrusting ourselves to Yeshua and his redemption. Let me say that again. 
Saving faith is entrusting ourselves to Yeshua and his redemption. Verses 18 to 21 tells us how to have, uh, how to acquire this saving faith. Faith in God and his offer of redemption. So let's read from those verses, knowing that, starting here, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Messiah and of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So we're redeemed with the blood of Messiah as of a lamb, a spotless lamb. We know that Yeshua never sinned. And he was manifested in these last times. Well, when are the last times? They started actually when Yeshua came and the apostolic age and the church age we're in today. We're already in the last times. I think we're in the last of the last times. And then through him, we believe in God who raised him from the dead and we give him glory. The most powerful redemption story we have in the Hebrew scriptures is the exodus of the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. But they would never have made it out of Egypt safely unless they put their faith, their trust in God and in the power of the blood of the sacrificed lamb at Passover. If the father of the household doubted God's command to sprinkle blood on the doorposts of the house with the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, then death would have come to that family. But every household who believed that God is the redeeming God and that the sprinkling of that blood on the doorpost would redeem them from destruction, then they were saved. Well, these verses tell us that in space and time, Yeshua manifested himself as this lamb, this Passover lamb on the earth. John, when he saw Yeshua for the first time, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, in verse 21 of our text, in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says that this redemption is only possible by putting our trust in him, Yeshua, and believe that by putting our trust in him, in his shed blood that he purchased us with through his death on the cross, then we are freed, we're liberated, we're delivered from the bondage of sin. It is through putting our trust in Yeshua and what he has done for us that means we are true believers in God and, not, and we possess saving faith. Well, God offers everyone in the world a free offer of this redemption from slavery. To every fallen sinful person, he's provided a way to pay on behalf of us our wages of sin, which is death. He's already paid that on the cross. But until we accept that free offer by faith, we will not receive our redemption. We will not be saved. Yeshua was not just a last minute solution God came up with to solve our sin problem. But rather, it says in verse 20 that this perfect lamb, through the shedding of his blood, was foreordained before the foundation of the world. This was God's plan A for sinful humanity. Have you entrusted your life into the hands of Yeshua? Have you put your trust in his redemption and have confessed your sins and have asked him to be your redeemer? 
If you do, if you've done that, then you have saving faith. Now, speaking of, of entrusting ourselves to our Savior, our Redeemer, let me tell you a true story about a tightrope walker named Charles Blunden. Among other sources, this story is actually told in the Smithsonian Magazine. Well, this tightrope actor decided that he would cross over the Niagara River at Niagara Falls from the American side to the Canadian side. And he was confident he could make it to the other side because he had done this many times before. And he vowed that every time he will do it in the future, it, he will become more daring than ever. Well, the most daring thing was to invite another person, not a tightrope walker, just a regular guy, to join him. And a man by the name of Harry Colcord agreed to get on Blondin's back and together with Blondin's lead, they crossed over successfully on that tightrope to the other side. Now that took a lot of faith. 99.9% .9 of people would not have enough, enough faith to put their trust in a tightrope walker to take them safely to the other side over this great chasm. Now some people might think that they have faith, but it's only when someone invites you to do something that's a matter of life and death that you know that you really have faith in that person. And when it comes to saving faith, we know that whether we have that, that kind of faith and confidence in God when we are confronted with a life and death situation. That's why Peter talks about the testing of our faith. It's a fiery trial. It's a testing to see if our faith is genuine and we have actually entrusted ourselves to our Savior. Have you ever entrusted your life to Yeshua as Messiah, Savior, who can get you across the great gulf between sinful mankind and God, between you and God? Some of you may not be convinced that Yeshua is the only way to be saved. You may believe that he was a good teacher, a good rabbi, but he's not your Savior or Redeemer. But he is more than just a good teacher and a good rabbi. God proves to us that he is more than that. How? By raising him from the dead and giving him glory, as our text says. And it's putting our lives into the hands of this risen Lord who is alive and well and sits on, at the right hand of God the Father who will return soon to the earth to rule and reign from his throne here in Jerusalem forever. So it's faith in this one, this one and only Savior, this only this one and only mediator between man and God, Yeshua, he's the only way that we can get started in this process of salvation. Now, God is not asking us to have blind faith. Rather, he is asking us to believe in someone who walked on the earth. He manifested himself, as Peter says, in human flesh so that we could believe not just in a philosophy or an ideology, but believe in someone who came in flesh and blood that could be seen, could be touched. This same Peter who wrote this letter was one of the inner circle of three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And all three of them were able to see him, touch him, hear him, watch his miracles. And they saw him in his resurrected body as well. In fact, John writes in 1 John chapter 1, these words, that which was from the beginning, which we, have, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you 
that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. These same three disciples met with a resurrected Lord. They watched him ascend into heaven. They knew he was real. And you know, the resurrection of Jesus is one of the most easily proven historical events. I've preached about these proofs before. Many scholars and those who are experts in apologetics have presented these proofs and they're amazing. So we're not just believing in someone whom historians say lived on the earth. But we know because Peter, James, and John were so convinced that they had met the risen Messiah and that he was their savior that they risked their entire lives to preach that good news wherever possible. And in fact, historians say, some of the early church fathers say that Peter would eventually be crucified, but in his case, upside down. So if you've never entrusted your life to God, Today is the day of salvation. And we don't know what tomorrow will bring. But while you're still alive, do what the Apostle Paul says you must do to have faith that saves you. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes under righteousness and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. So this is how we begin our own story of redemption. By faith, we sprinkle the blood of Yeshua on the doorposts of our hearts. And the Lord accepts our decision to believe and trust in his redemption. And we begin the process of completing our salvation step by step until the end. Now this brings me to my second point. Saving faith will be tested to make sure it's genuine saving faith. Let me say that again. Saving faith will be tested to make sure it's genuine saving faith. We read in verse 7, 6 and 7 of our text in 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Yeshua, the Messiah. So Peter wrote to exiles scattered abroad in the Roman Empire. We read about that in the first few verses of this chapter. And we often feel like exiles ourselves. And there are many in our own ranks who are tired of being members of a peculiar people and have decided to assimilate into the world. It wasn't enough for them to be accepted by their heavenly father through Yeshua. They want to be accepted by the world. And so they are parting ways from the narrow path and they're walking on the Broadway. A lot of people make a decision to trust God and receive Yeshua's shed, shedding of his blood to pay for their sins. However, the majority do not complete the process of salvation. Many, many fall away. A study was done many years ago that showed that only about 4% of people who made a confession of faith at a Billy Graham event continued to live a life of faith and became part of a body of believers. Most fell away. And this continues to happen all the time. This shouldn't surprise us as Yeshua told the parable of the seed sown on different kinds of soil. And most of those plants never lasted nor bore fruit. 
And then there's the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the wheat and the tares, the wheat, those with saving faith that lasted until the Lord took them home, grew up alongside wheat, weeds that looked like wheat. They looked like genuine believers, but they didn't have genuine faith, faith that saves. Yesterday, I discovered a similar parable. I was looking at a beautiful bowl of fruit on our table. And I went to eat an orange, but when I picked it up, it was as light as a feather. It was plastic and it was hollow, yet it looked so real. Let me show you how real it actually looks. Pretty amazing. Uh, if you were in the room, you could get up really close and you wouldn't know which one was the real one. I went to get an orange and this is what I got. <laughs> this thing is as light as a feather and it's hollow. And I can tell you it doesn't taste very good. Well... Our faith needs to be tested. Is it real? Is it fake? Or is it real faith? Now, we need the substance of faith. Some of us have hollow faith, but we need the real thing. So let me continue in this text. It's a sad state of affairs, but over these past 10 or 11 months during this pandemic, you're hearing many stories of Yeshua followers who have fallen away from the Lord and have given in to the enticement of the prince of this world. Each of these individuals has a unique story of how this happened. One thing for sure, their faith was not real. They may have made, made an intellectual assent to a set of truths about Yeshua, but it never went from their head to their heart. They never had saving faith because saving faith is Faithful fate. It is, in fact, it's um, the kind of faith that we read about in the scriptures, both in the Hebrew text and in the New Testament Greek. The most common word for faith in the Old Testament is the word emunah. And most of our English translations use the word faith as the English word for that Hebrew word emunah. And the Greek word pistis is translated also into other languages, especially English, as faith or belief. But it's a misunderstanding to think that faith is only this mental assent to a set of beliefs. It can give us a false security. We hear a lot about fake news, but there's also fake faith. And I think we all agree that demons are not saved. Yet, they have an intellectual belief in God. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, But someone will say you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith with my works. You believe that there is only one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So saving faith must be more than this intellectual assent to a set of truths. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, it says in the New King James Version, But the just shall live by faith. Faith here is that Hebrew word emunah. The Hebrew word is defined in the Hebrew-English lexicon, Brown, Driver, and Briggs, like this. They say in their lexicon that the first meaning of this word emunah is firmness. The second meaning is steadfastness. And the third meaning is faithfulness or trust. Now, these gentlemen that put that classic Lexicon together, we're all Christian scholars. And yet, so many Christian translators and Messianic translators only put the word faith in 
the text where Hebrew is probably something far more than this intellectual faith. It is firmness, it's steadfastness, it is faithfulness in the faith. And then there's the Greek word pistis, which is the word translated as faith here in our text in 1 Peter chapter 1. And a trusted lexicon of the New Testament Greek says that pistis can mean faithfulness, reliability, fidelity, and commitment. So real faith is that is saving faith is faith that is committed. It is faithful faith. It is faith that causes a person to persevere until the end in their belief. What kind of faith do you have? Is it for real? You may be confident that you have saving faith, but you might not. And one way you'll know is when it's tested in the fire. Verse 7 says in our text that the genuineness of our faith is tested by fire. We'll only know whether our faith is faith that saves us if we keep believing and keep on being faithful to what we believe when we are tested by the enemy, by life circumstances. Some people we know in the Middle East have been given a choice. A man comes to them and says, unless you, unless you convert to our religion, unless you deny your faith in Yeshua and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're going to lose your head. And for some of us, our faith can more readily even disappear in times of trials like this. Let's, I know some believers who have fallen in love with someone who uh, takes them off their feet and they, they, they are so enamored with that person that when that person proposes to them for marriage, they, even if that person says, I'll marry you if you give up your faith and join my faith, these tests come to each and every one of us one way or another. Saving faith is always tested. Will you pass the test? And allow the Lord to complete his work of redemption and salvation in your life. Now I've got one more point. But before we go there, let me remind you of the points I've already shared with you. Saving faith is entrusting our lives to Yeshua and his redemption. His payment for our sin. He pays the wages of our sin, which is death. Secondly, saving faith will be tested to make sure that it's genuine saving faith. And now I'm going to share you this, with you this third truth. Saving faith, if it is real, is worked out through a long journey to a destination worth pursuing. Let me say that again. Saving faith, if it is real, is worked out through a long journey to a destination worth pursuing. Yes, it's a journey. Peter opens this letter saying, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, the word actually uh, is taken from the word, the Greek word, which we get the word diaspora. Well, our father of faith, Abraham, was a pilgrim on a long journey to a destination worth pursuing. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 10, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as a foreign, in a foreign country. Dwelling with Isaac and intense with Isaac and Jacob and heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. 
Ultimately, the city, the destination that we're all headed for, like Abraham, is the city of God, the new Jerusalem that will one day descend from heaven to earth. Verses 7 to 9 reveal this truth. Peter says that our faith, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. And then verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now to get from here to heaven and get from baby steps to a solid stride on our journey toward that final goal, Peter tells us how to conduct ourselves to make it to the end. His roadmap is here in verses 13 to 16. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Now, I wish I could go deep into those verses. There's so much richness of truth there. I'd like to be able to explain and expound all of those things. We don't have time. Now, one of Peter's most powerful appeals to us to stay faithful until we reach our heavenly destination is the prize at the end of our journey. Yes, there's already a way to experience joy in the journey, but there's even greater reason for joy when we look at what we will receive from God at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah, when we meet him face to face, when he comes back again. Peter already revealed in verse 4 that what, what awaits us, uh, those of us who have saving faith, it's an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Not many preachers today talk about heaven. The trend in the last 50 years or so, I would say, is an emphasis on how to live in this world. And yes, we need to know how to live in this world. But in these last of the last days, it's going to be harder and harder for us to live in this world as the peculiar chosen people of God. For this world will become increasingly intolerant of the people of faith. And it's those of us who are already experiencing rejection because of our faith, we need to hear once again that we belong to another world. Those of us who will refuse to conform to this world will likely find themselves uh, discriminated against and will probably find it harder to get a job or keep a job. And we are increasingly misfits in this world. You know, back at the beginning of this epistle, Peter says that he's writing to exiles. And the Greek word here can mean aliens or even refugees. We don't fit into this world's mold. And we are increasingly feeling like alien, aliens. Peter's words will be more relevant than ever in the days to come. And we will be relieved to know that if we lose our friends or we are written out of our parents' will, we will have more than what this world can compensate us with, we will have an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved for us in heaven. Now, as I'm coming to a conclusion, let me say this. Our lifespan on earth is but a blip on the screen of eternity. But how we live out our faith behind the shield on this earth will determine forever what kind of eternity we'll have. Peter says that if we are faithful to our faith until the end, we will receive praise, honor, and glory at the return of the Lord. 
Almost all Bible scholars agree that this praise, honor, and glory that Peter is talking about is actually coming to those who have this genuine, thoroughly tested, saving faith. When we stand before the judge of all the universe, those of us who have kept the faith and have carried the shield of faith rather than the flag of surrender to the prince of this world will be honored by the Lord. Now, that shouldn't be our main motivation for obeying and becoming holy according to the commands of our commander. But those of us who he has recruited and chosen for his army will receive five-star treatment if our faith has been proven faithful. Those of us who've invested our whole lives in living for God behind the shield of faith will hear those words one day, well done, good and faithful servant. In Revelation chapter 2, Yeshua says to those who are about to suffer, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. Then he says, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. And there are different degrees and different types of honor that will be given out to those of us who have made it to the end by faith. There are at least five different crowns reserved for those of us who have kept the faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we read about the victor's crown. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, there's the crown of rejoicing. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, there's the crown of righteousness. In James chapter 1, there's the, the crown of glory and also we see that in 1 Peter 5, verse 4. I don't want to leave you with the impression that the journey of faith we can do, we can make to the end in our own strength. And Peter tells us that we can tap into a power source that will keep us moving until the end. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is, and I want to remind you again of what this is, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So we work out our own salvation, but it is God who works in us to bring that about. We need to plug into God's resurrection power. Peter talks about that in verse 21 of our text. Through him, believe in God who raised him from the dead. God has resurrection power to give us. Plug into God's spirit. First Peter 1, 2 says that we are sanctified by the spirit. Let me leave you with a wonderful psalm. Psalm 28, verses 6 and 7. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplications. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song, I will praise him. We have every reason to praise the Lord, the one who has called us, he's chosen us, he's redeemed us, he's made us sons and daughters. He has given us marching orders to go on this journey to the very end, and we don't go alone, he goes with us. His resurrection power we can tap into. His Holy Spirit he's given to us to empower us to make it. Let me sum up all that we've spoken about this evening. Number one, saving faith is entrusting our lives to Yeshua and his redemption. Number two, saving faith will be tested to make sure it's genuine saving faith. And finally, saving faith, if it is real, is worked out through a long journey to a destination 
worth pursuing. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the privilege of being chosen to being your children. Thank you, God, for the promises you've made to those who believe, not just in a set of statement of truths, but it's gone into our hearts and we've confessed with our mouth who you are. We have said to you, you're the Lord. And we believe in our hearts that you raised Yeshua from the dead, the one and only Savior of the world. We put our trust, we entrust our lives into the hands of Yeshua, the one mediator between man and God, the one who can get us across the chasm to the other side safely and securely. We know it's at the end of this journey, an imperishable inheritance, incorruptible. And you will even honor us with crowns. And we know from your word that we will even be co-heirs with you. What an incredible privilege, Lord. May none of us give up on the way. For great is the prize. First and foremost, you're the prize. To see you face to face and to live with you forever. And then all these other prizes that you will hand out to those who have been faithful in their walk with you. So Lord, may each and every one of us right now make a fresh consecration of ourselves to do whatever you tell us to do. Whatever you say, Lord, we will do. Amen. 